Hi, and welcome to the Stefan Levera podcast, a show about Bitcoin and Austrian economics. Today, for episode 145, I've got an interview with Rahim Takizadegan about his book, The Zero Interest Rate Trap. But first, a word for the sponsors. This podcast is brought to you by Kraken, one of the world's leading Bitcoin exchanges. They are one of the longest standing Bitcoin exchanges in the space. They're consistently rated the best. They offer a high quality platform with some of the best liquidity available in the industry. They have high trading volume and low fees with no minimum or hidden fees. Kraken have 24-7 support. The sign-up press is really quick. They also offer Kraken Pro mobile app, delivering all the security and features you love about the Kraken exchange in a beautiful mobile-first design for advanced Bitcoin trading on the go. Kraken also offer OTC Desk for those seeking a more private and personalized service for large block trades. They offer margin and futures. They also offer the CryptoWatch platform, a popular charting and trading terminal for Bitcoin markets. So go and sign up at kraken.com. This episode is also brought to you by Unchained Capital, a Bitcoin financial services company empowering their customers with financial freedom and control. All their products and services are built on the foundation of multi-sig, so you retain control of your private keys while also receiving the benefit of a financial partner. So Unchained offer two of three vaults. You can use Trezor and Ledger, and these are a great option if you're thinking through how best to secure your Bitcoin for the long term. And if you need to access liquidity without selling your Bitcoin, Unchained offer collateralized loans, so you can get US dollars without selling. So that Bitcoin is stored on-chain in dedicated multi-sig addresses. It's never rehypothecated and you can share in the security by holding one of three keys. I'm really impressed with Unchained. Look out for an interview I've got coming soon with Will Cole. They offer excellent services and make sure you check them out at unchained-capital.com. Next, check out givebitcoin.io under the overarching brand of SWAN, the easiest and safest way to get your friends and family into Bitcoin with just an email address. Take it from me. I've given Bitcoin to people before and they lost it. Give Bitcoin has a nice twist on that because your gift is time delayed with a regulated US custodian for one year. And during that time, Give Bitcoin is delivering 12 monthly lessons to your recipient. There's input from many well-known Bitcoiners. I'm also an advisor with a small equity stake and I'm assisting with the curriculum also. And keep an eye out for more exciting announcements coming. There's a new brand and product coming called Save Bitcoin. So the aim is to really have a positive impact on Bitcoin adoption and understanding. So I'm excited to have them as a sponsor. Go and check them out at givebitcoin.io. Have you backed up your Bitcoin seed? You need to look into the Cypher Wheel product produced by CypherSafe, and the website is cyphersafe.io. So if you've invested in a Bitcoin hardware wallet, are you keeping that BIP39 seed backed up in a way that's fireproof, waterproof, rustproof, petproof, and tamper evident? Look into Cypher Wheel. It comes in a wheel shape. It masks the words of your seed unless you open the padlock tamper evident seal so you know it's been opened. CypherSafe are changing up the stainless steel alloy used so the product provides more corrosion resistance and otherwise it scored an A on heat and crushing on a recent round of physical seed testing. Make sure that you or your loved ones have access to your Bitcoins if an accident occurs. The orders are going out in early February, so go and order yours at cyphersafe.io. So today for the interview with Rahim, he is an Austrian economist 
from Austria. And so we talk about that in the interview. And Rahim joins me to talk about the problems with central banking and the social consequences of fiat money. So if you've enjoyed some of my earlier episodes on Austrian economics or perhaps episode 51 with Guido Holzman, I think you will really enjoy this interview. We talk about some of the problems with central banking, what governments are unable to do under this environment, what impacts that has on the capital structure of the economy, and importantly, what are some of the social consequences of fiat money? So here is the interview. Welcome to the show, Rahim. Thanks for having me. So, Rahim, I had the chance to uh, read your book and uh, I was looking into a bit of your background. I think you've got a very interesting background. On your profile, you list yourself as the last Austrian Austrian economist. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, yeah, the reason is more unfortunate is that the Austrian school disappeared in Austria uh, and... uh, the last members of the Austrian school, most of them moved to the United States, uh, some elsewhere, but it was only in the U.S. that the tradition has formed again from people really claiming to be members of the Austrian school. And I got to go to the United States uh, quite a long time ago already as a nuclear physicist at the time. And uh, I was studying economics on the side in Austria, and I never had heard about Austrian economics. Uh, so. Uh, it just it, it grabbed my attention in the United States. I somewhere read or heard uh, people talk about Austrian economics. Uh, and at first I thought it was the economics of Austria. But then I realized it's a whole tradition that really had disappeared in academia in Austria. So then I had a chance to learn from the last uh, representatives of that school. And uh, interestingly, they were German, German <laughs> uh, speaking. Like Hans Hermann Hoppe became one of my teachers. Uh, and there was another student of Hayek, uh, who remained in Germany uh, was Roland Bader, uh, but he didn't teach at university. He was an entrepreneur and independent scholar, uh, but he got to be my second teacher. And so then I immersed myself in this tradition and I tried to bring it back to Austria. And uh, since then, I've been teaching Austrian economics at university as well in Austria, and um, I'm the last one doing that. So that's why I consider myself the last Austrian, Austrian economist in a direct tradition. <laughs> Certainly an interesting story. And uh, Rahim, tell us a little bit about Scholarium and the Institute. What's that about? Yeah, uh, about uh, 12 years ago, I founded an institute with a colleague uh, of mine. And uh, what made us found an institute was that we were a bit frustrated at the university. Uh, I mean, it's not much better than <laughs> elsewhere, uh, mainstream academia in particular and the social sciences. Uh, and uh, back at the time, there seemed to be an economic crisis looming and uh, uh, some Austrian economists really had good timing back then and I was fortunately uh, among them. So there was quite an impetus to start uh, as a research and educational institute uh, entirely privately funded uh, by people who saw some real value in it and got some real value out of it uh, during uh, the last uh, economic correction. Uh, because uh, business cycle theory turned out to be quite useful to understand the dynamics uh, and even to try to apply it for investment uh, decisions. Uh, so that, that was the impetus for the Institute. It has broadened uh, quite a bit over the time. We now have a full-time study program and we try to bring back the Austrian school as it was meant to be as an interdisciplinary research program. Uh, we try to be a loop of ideology, so it's really about an, a deep interest in how the world works and how human beings work, and we combine it with the other traditions that arose out of Austria at the time, uh, in psychology, in uh, political philosophy, um, and so on, uh, history as well. 
Um, so that, that's what we try to do. And I think Vienna is a really good place to do that. We have this book, The Zero Interest Rate Trap. Do you want to set the scene for us a little bit around why you wrote this book? Yes, uh, of course, because there's a lot of talk about monetary policy at the moment uh, in Europe, uh, but uh, as well uh, in the United States. Uh, and we've seen uh, the Fed uh, taking the lead before in lowering interest rates and going for quantitative easing and so on after the last economic correction. And the ECB has more or less followed suit. Uh, but in Europe, it seems to be more traumatic because... Uh, more or less the euro, the whole currency, and the whole project of the European Union now depends so much uh, on this kind of monetary policy. Uh, and uh, if there's failure of this project, uh, it'll have a lot of political implications. Uh, so there's some political turmoil already in the European Union, quite a few member states going their own way. Uh, we have this huge conflict about uh, mass migration coming to the continent uh, so it's m a lot more politicized uh, maybe and uh, a lot more crises in different areas seem to be affected uh, here by monetary policy uh, it's not too different from the united states where you also have this kind of polarization and in the political debate uh, uh, but uh, uh, there's a larger diversity uh, in europe so uh, more aspects are affected. Uh, and uh, that moved us into not only understanding this kind of monetary policy, but uh, also uh, its societal and political implications. Um, and that hasn't been analyzed so far uh, right. this deeply. And that's what, what we've tried to do with this book. So for some of my listeners, they not all of them were into Austrian economics before getting into Bitcoin. Some of them came into Bitcoin and now they're learning a bit of Austrian economics, right? And so for some of those listeners, I would typically recommend that they would read a book like uh, What Has Government Done to Our Money by Murray Rothbard and uh, that they should read The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Hulsman. Uh, and I think those books together will help give some insight into like why we ended up in this problem today. And also, I think The Ethics of Money Production by Guido Holzman also touches on uh, some of these cultural and spiritual impacts of inflation on society. And I view your book, it's it's kind of also touching on to some of those points and expanding on in a further direction. Uh, but for somebody who may not be as familiar with the Austrian story around, okay, why is central banking a problem. Uh, can you spell out some of the, the reasons why an Austrian economist is skeptical of central banking? Yes, because we see uh, money as a, a social device which will help uh, interaction, foster peaceful interaction. Uh, and so we're wary of any kind of intervention uh, in, in prices and the interest rate is a price as well. <clears throat> any particular money. And there's uh, very few historical laws, but there seems to be one that there's almost without exception. I think there are only two exceptions in history. Uh, the monetary base has been debased uh, by those in control because it's very tempting. It's like a hidden tax. Uh, uh, so it has been done all around the world in almost every epoch. Uh, and uh, one of the main outcomes uh, of this intervention has been the uh, uh, easiness uh, to finance wars. So there's been a lot of destruction to this uh, kind of intervention uh, in money, in this kind of hidden tax and transfer to the plunderers. Of society and basically unproductive uh, or even destructive uh, ventures. Uh, uh, so there's a quite of a historical backstory there. Um, uh, but we are now reaching a new uh, terrain, and uh, 
this turns out to be quite uh, interesting uh, in many senses. I mean, most economists, um, particularly from the mainstream, would have thought it impossible uh, to reach that kind of state of monetary policy that we're in right now. Um, and I think the deep understanding of monetary theory uh, by Austrian economists, in particular Ludwig von Mises and of course Karl Menger before him, uh, helped a lot more in understanding what's going on and really analyzing it, because not much has changed in the idea in the ideology surrounding uh, monetary topics. We are right back at the same discussion that we had in the 19th century between Karl Menger and the representatives of the historical school. Um, and those representatives were mainly following um, Mr. Knopp, uh, Professor Knopp, uh, who claimed that money is always a creation of the state. It's just a legal entity. So it's just by fiat. It's, it's a, a convention set by the state. And that's everything you need to know about it. So, uh, uh, and uh, Menga, of course, had the other approach of looking how certain goods are discovered by people in directions to have a higher liquidity, a higher marketability. Uh, so he's looking at really the dynamics of exchange and interaction and, and the spontaneous discovery of market participants. And uh, um, it's not really a story about the history of money. It's a story about the function and the ontology, maybe, of money. Uh, and it's really important to have that point of view as well. doesn't say that Knapp was wrong in everything, uh, but of course, it's a negation of this kind of really understanding empathically what people try to do with money, uh, what are the potential uses, functions, and problems with money. You don't get all that part of the story, and it's basically the people side of money, um, and you only get the convention side. And that leads to political hybris, uh, I call it. Uh, and then we can see in particular the ECB policy and the EU policy is a kind of technocratic lead trying to steer things. They can really understand and they can really control in the end. Right, yeah. And so it's like you've got the charterlist state theory of money. And then on the other hand, you have the Austrians who are saying, no, no, it's actually spontaneous. It's coming. It's a bottom-up thing. It's not like we explicitly agreed, oh, this is the most saleable. This is the most liquid. It's it's just over time, it just emerged, right? Uh, and so we see that and we contra we contrast the Austrian understanding around money and economics. And then you look at what say a Keynesian might be thinking and up until you know recently and historically speaking they, they would have referred to it as the zero lower bound right so what what are they referring to when they talk about oh the zero lower bound and why are we now actually going past that well to Keynes uh, the interest rate was a kind of liquidity premium so he really wouldn't have thought about zero interest rate uh, neither uh, and of course, it's a bound, uh, but it seems to be a psychological bound uh, right now. It's that uh, we've had the real negative interest rates for quite a while. Uh, this just means the depreciation uh, of money and purchasing power that people don't realize. Uh, uh, and what uh, the central banks are reluctant to do is to go to nominal negative interest rates. Uh, because, uh, and I think it's quite likely that'll be a psychological barrier. It'll, I mean, even for people who have no idea about money, that's what they understand is nominal values. And if they see the, the nominal value of the savings decreasing, they might panic, they might withdraw money from their banks, they might go into cash or other assets, of course. And uh, of course, that's been going on for a while, but it might may have this self-increasing tendency, which then leads to a flight out of money and that's, that'll be really bad for the exchange rate of the currency, which goes first uh, for negative nominal negative interest rates. Uh, and uh, it'll be good for wealth assets again. 
but uh, yeah, that's that's I think what central banks are afraid of. They get another kind of dynamic uh, which is uh, self increasing by itself and can't be controlled anymore. Yeah, and, and interestingly, I note in the book, and you talk about central banking and the impact that they have on society. And you point out there's actually a study by is it Elijah Brewer and Julapa Jagtiani showing that commercial banks actually tried to invest money to reach the status of being systemically relevant, yeah. which is like a very, in their view, that's rational. But from the system point of view, that's very yeah. Yeah. irrational. Can you outline a little bit around what what is that? Uh, what's that meaning of the systemically relevant, and why are they trying to play that game? Yeah, because more or less the central bank monetary policy has been we just produce uh, the fiat money to buy off any assets, and they become the last bad bank of the system, uh, uh, buying up all the toxic assets <laughs> as they call it, in order to stabilize the system. But of course. Thus, they create incentives uh, to more and more reckless behavior. Uh, And uh, the focus of big institutions like banks and big corporations uh, and so on, not to do productive work, innovative work, but somehow trick the system. And everyone, in a way, has to trick the system. I mean, that's how how you make money by investing is you try to trick the system. You try to anticipate what central banks will be doing. Thus, you render it futile what they're doing. And then so it's like anticipating a second order thing. Uh, where this uh, increased liquidity we go in which assets uh, and you can make a lot of money <laughs> by being good at anticipating it but that uh, means that more and more money has uh, less of a productive uh, function uh, it's quite kind of a way uh, to just like try to game uh, the system i think uh, maybe tying back to some of that point around the zero lower bound and so on so obviously from an austrian perspective we're skeptical of some of these ideas but someone who's coming from say a keynesian point of view they might think oh well see there's this output gap and we need to lower the interest rate to try and uh, kind of juice the economy or stimulate uh, and so that is the that's sort of like a keynesian paradigm and we're sort of stuck in that paradigm how would you is that would you say that's like a fair way to summarize it or how how are you thinking of that idea and how how would an austrian come back to that and say well no actually that's not right yeah, I think Keynes, if he was alive, he'd be surprised. Uh, and I don't think you can really call it Keynesian what we have now, the paradigm. It's a kind of neo-Keynesian mixture with monetarist uh, ideas and, of course, a lot of modern monetary theory now coming in uh, lately. Uh, so it's a kind of mixture. And I think it's a technocratic perspective which for which it's all quantitative aggregates uh, uh, of money flows, uh, and someone being on the lever and just uh, increasing money there and decreasing money there. And so that, of course, misses the picture what all this thing is about, what all the economy is about, and that's uh, fulfilling the preferences of people. Uh, and uh, the more you intervene there, the less it fulfills this function, and the more it becomes a futile project of just uh, employing people, uh, paying them slips of money or digital uh, kinds of money, uh, which you then spend senselessly uh, and so on. And that's not what was meant by market economy by the analysts of the Austrian school. I mean, uh, Mises gave a very good definition. He thought that the market market economy is where the consumer and the saver decide about the production structure. uh, so and it's like every cent they spend uh, is is, is uh, um, uh, a, a voting as uh, is, is a vote uh, that they give uh, on the market, uh, and I think uh, we're seeing less and less of that. So I wouldn't call it a market economy. Even uh, it's a kind of a 
a mixed uh, economy where more and more of the productive structure is not determined by the preferences of the consumers, in particular the savers, uh, which of course is the other side uh, of consuming. If you can't say no, then you're not really sovereign. And it's all about the sovereignty of the consumer and, and the saver. Uh, and that's uh, what's really worrying uh, me. Uh, we, you get a kind of reaction towards what's perceived as a market economy, perceived as capitalism, which in fact uh, is less and less so. It's very ironic, but people look at the system today and say, oh, look, it's late capitalism, when really what we have is a very strong amount of government influence and interference in the market for money. Now, I think an important point that might be good for you to explain for the listeners is just that point you were making around the structure of production, right? So it's not that uh, goods are just magically uh, created, right? There's a structure to that. And can you explain a little bit around that and the role that interest rates form in coordinating that structure? Yes, uh, most people think that capital is money, uh, but it's only, of course, part of a structure. Capital is actually a structure. Uh, Bavek called it a roundabout uh, production. Uh, so you take a roundabout way, and the structure means a combination of very different aspects, and a lot of them are mental aspects. It's ideas, it's experiences, your talent, which you have to match somehow, as in the puzzle piece, you match it with the material goods around you, the capital goods around you, the tools, potential tools, but there's nothing objective material about being a tool. A tool is something you perceive as a tool and you know how to use as a tool. And that forms a quite complicated structure where every person should try to be uh, best fit as possible uh, uh, as in a puzzle and producing uh, what people will prefer in the future. And you see there's an intertemporal aspect in that as well, and that's very important that uh, uh, you have to be, you have to produce before you can consume, you have to have the structure around before it's even realized by the market that it's of any value. So it, it can be without value, it's nothing objective that you can see in the material goods, it's how those tools are used and how in the future people will decide the results of the use of these tools turns out to be. Uh, and uh, this intertemporal uh, coordination is very important because uh, uh, when waste happens, it means there's a lack of intertemporal coordination, and uh, and interest uh, the interest rate is a price uh, for uh, uh, or the price that enhances this kind of intertemporal intertemporal coordination in the capital structure. That's why any intervention with interest rates has a more pernicious effect than uh, a price intervention because usually price intervention is a price for some good, so it disturbs just one market. But if you have intervention in the interest rate, it disturbs the whole intertemporal adjustment of the capital structure. And uh, 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 the downside of that is potential capital consume. Uh, which means you f it feels as if you're wealthier than you are in the long run. And then there'll be bills to pay in the long run. There'll be corrections in the long run, uh, which are uh, negative surprises to many people. And that's, of course, what the crisis is about. It's a whole lot. It's a cluster of negative surprises, a cluster of errors that's revealed. And an error always means uh, that there's waste going on, that uh, things that could have been used in a better way have been used up already. Uh, and that means poverty to some people, it means frustration to many people, it means change of life plans uh, uh, in a negative way for many people. And that's really what do you want to avoid and that's why there needs to be an intertemporal coordination in the build off of a capital structure. Uh, excellent. And so it's basically making that point that you might have a kind of false prosperity because you think you're really rich when in reality you are 
kind of chewing down your capital stock or you are consuming your capital stock in ways that are just not efficient, right? Now, I've heard uh, the great Bob Murphy make an example. It would be like saying, you know, you're living in a hut and instead of using like normal firewood for the uh, for the fire, you like take your, you know, really nice wooden couch and you throw that in the fire, right? And we're kind of, it's like, that would be a very inefficient way because we're not allowing the natural way of the market to drive the production and intertemporally order it in a way that is more efficient for us. We're actually taking these things and just like kind of wastefully throwing them. Maybe a, a modern day example might be something like a company like Uber, right? So there might be a lot of drivers who are not necessarily taking into account the depreciation and amortization costs of their mm. car, but they think they're earning money out of it. And yes, they are earning money out of it, but maybe they're not accounting for all the correct costs. Yeah. Is that a good analogy you would say? Yeah, that's, that's a very good example. Yeah, a lot of the capital consumption is actually increased profits taken out of companies. Uh, it's uh, too high a salary, it's not taking into account depreciations uh, uh, and so on. Uh, so yeah, that's what capital consumption looks like. And then, of course, a lot of the transfers uh, happening in political systems, uh, a lot in the pension systems, huge problem with that in the European Union uh, uh, so there's a lot of pre-consumed wealth, uh, which somehow sets your mind and then we are up for some really bad surprises in the future. Right. Yeah. And we'll get into some of that. I would also love to talk a little bit around the situation with government bonds, right? So as uh, as you point out in your book as well, I think you even make a point that there are some Argentinian, what's called Methuselah bonds, and they're like a hundred year bond. And yet... Anybody who has any vague idea of history knows that Argentina has had many monetary problems over the decades. Why would anybody trust a 100-year bond? Yeah, actually, the best performing asset in the last year was the 100-year Austrian bond. Because Austria, of course, has a high credit rating because the Austrians are perceived to be very good payers of taxes. And that's basically what it's about. But in a sense, bonds have become a kind of base money. So it's just it's like money, but it's not having the banking risk in it you just have the state default risk and once the state really controls monetary policy and you've got international organizations coordinating like imf and so on this risk is deemed to be much lower than any kind of banking risk and of course any kind of entrepreneurial risk so when people uh, tend to become wary of maybe underreported entrepreneurial risks then they go for bonds as well uh, so we've seen this kind of bond bubble, uh, but it's really just going for base money uh, in a sense. Uh, it's like a default account now uh, because in the last economic crisis, we've seen that central banks are taking everything, um, uh, making everything it takes to buy up bonds when their price is falling down. So it's perceived uh, as a systemically relevant assets which will always be protected. Uh, so it looks like the safest asset, and at the same time, it produces uh, a high yields. Uh, if you see the appreciation of the bonds, uh, so it's really been been a star <laughs> for investors' uh, bonds. And I think is the last few ways to really make lots of money is to make the carry trades is to get the zero interest money and then buy up bonds with higher interest rates as in argentina for example we get a few more percentage points and if you have very long credit lines you basically get free money uh, out of that and that's the reason why investors are so happy with those kind of bonds right and so it's it's essentially a big leverage play and we might say that 
it's only in this fiat money world that you can achieve that kind of leverage because it's only in this fiat money world that credit is that available. And if you contrast that with, say, a hard money world, there's not going to be that much credit available and therefore they won't be able to play these leverage games, correct? Sure, sure. What what kind of real saver would put his money at <laughs> the test there and just get an upside of a few percentage points, maybe one, two percentage points, uh, but take the whole downside of speculating in Argentinian bonds or <laughs> who knows what uh, and, and leveraged uh, speculation, uh, those kind of things. Right. And when we're talking about the overarching system of government bonds and funding the government, essentially what we're there's probably two main ways you can lose out of that, right? So one way is that if a government were to repudiate its debt, and if you are a bondholder, then you lose out in that scenario. Or the other way, and probably the more common scenario, is that they they do repay you, but they're repaying you back in fiat dollars that have gone down in value over time. So can you spell out a little bit of your thinking on that? Yeah, of course. <laughs> that's that's the way it works. Uh, and the likelier way, I mean, it's only weak states uh, who default. Uh, it's states though, of which the, the debt is held mostly by powerful outsiders uh, and not inside the country. If uh, your citizens are holding your debt, then hey, basically you're free to do uh, whatever you like. And to prevent political turmoil, usually it's better to go the hidden way, and that's just inflation, depreciation of the currency. Uh, and that's why... Uh, states really like that kind of financing, uh, and it seems effortless. And that's where mo- modern monetary theory goes. Basically, saying, okay, we're already there. I mean, if you can produce as much bonds as you like, because you'll always have the central banks buying it up. If private investors are not buying it up, then basically it just means money production, and that's correct. I think a lot of the analysis uh, analysis of the modern monetary theory turns out to be correct. It's not because their models are right. It's because the world has become like their models and as crazy as their models. Uh, so a lot of the analysis is correct, that if you only insiders hold the debt, you just produce as much as you need. Uh, and that's basically everything you need to know about money. <laughs> right. And so the the challenge is that most people don't understand that they're really just losing a lot of money against the inflation. So they might have store some of their wealth in bonds, but then in reality, their real purchasing power is just going down over time. Yeah, the big problem is that historically bonds and stocks were inversely correlated. So you could play safe and you usually had a mix between bonds and stocks. Uh, uh, so you combat depreciation by holding stocks, but you have some safety of the corrections by holding bonds. But that doesn't uh, hold out anymore because right now bonds and stocks are positively positively correlated for the first time uh, in history, uh, and that makes it really difficult for the average investors. And of course, you're losing money by uh, leaving it on the bank account, uh, but now it's not even sure you'll be protected from the next correction if you go conservatively investing, just trying to keep up with the depreciation of the money, you may lose even more. Hmm. And this- if all if all assets go go along and, and correlate, and that's the big problem in investing right now. Basically, uh, almost every asset is correlated, uh, and uh, that's why every asset has been appreciating. And so people are looking for more and more exotic assets, uh, and uh, that's also where the Bitcoin story uh, comes in as a one potentially not yet correlated asset. Uh, and every correction in Bitcoin, which is not correlated to a stock exchange correction, is a very good sign for the long-term Bitcoin investor because it may show that it's inversely correlated. But we can't be sure about that, of course. 
only seen the next correction. Right, I see. And how, in your mind, does that change the way people think about their cash balance, right? So right now, okay, when you're living in a hard money world, then you, yeah, your cash balance is more meaningful because you, you have more certainty over that, right? Like whether that's gold or let's say in, in enough time, people are holding Bitcoin and they consider that their cash balance. But nowadays, it's like you can't hold too much in your cash balance. They have to keep some in stocks and bonds and so on because they feel like they're losing pace against inflation. Yeah, even nowadays, a cash balance is defined as being in bonds. It's, uh, of course, as a regular investor and institutional investor, cash means being in uh, monetary funds and those are short-term uh, government bonds, actually. And we've seen that those assets are protected, are even better protected than the bank accounts. Uh, it's like a limitless guarantee by central banks. Uh, and that's how almost every investor keeps cash nowadays. Uh, so the meaning of cash has totally changed. Right. And I think you make a great point there as well. And this ties into the point around government debt, because this whole architecture and scenario that we're living in today it helps fund government debt because now we're holding uh, something that helps the government basically palm off its costs onto the rest of society. Can you articulate a little bit there around why this bonds system now and this fiat money world helps fund a lot of that government welfare and warfare states? Yeah, every government bond is a claim on future tax payments. So if you hold a government bond, you're actually holding a claim against yourself and your future self and your kids, <laughs> your grandkids, if you have the Methuselah bonds uh, and so on. Uh, so that's really challenging and morally challenging in a way. Uh, so more or less the market seems like, uh, which is not really a market, uh, my, uh, my teacher Roland Bader called it the money, so money socialism. Uh, this kind of money socialism forces you to hold claims against yourself as a cash balance, uh, and that's uh, really odd. Uh, uh, and that, of course, is great uh, for uh, government financing. It's never been as easy as that. Uh, even in times where there's no real economic growth, our governments are overflowing and tax revenue and uh, decreased uh, uh, financing costs uh, for the debts already. So they have lots of money on their hands, uh, and of course they are eager to take over more and more functions of the market economy and of a functioning society. Uh, and that's another really bad downside of this kind of zero interest rate policy. Uh, it leads towards uh, a kind of statism where the state is seen as the gap filler in every kind of way, not just output gaps, but every kind of social gaps of market dysfunctioning, apparently, which of course is money socialism dysfunctioning uh, and so on. Uh, and we should be really wary of that. Yeah. And as we have seen over these last few decades, you make this point about interest rate asymmetry. And so you're saying that the rates are being lowered more sharply than they later have been raised in each cycle. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, this is like the interventional spiral uh, that we've seen in politics. It's always easier to go one way than repeal uh, the errors you've made before. And it's a bit similar with... Uh, Decreased interest rates, decreased interest rates make more people and politicians dependent on easy money. And it's really hard to withdraw uh, uh, a drug from a dependent from an addict. Uh, so that's more or less the reason why it's more difficult to increase interest rates. Uh, if the market already anticipates lowering interest rates, then even a stagnation of interest rates uh, is like a bearish sign. Uh, so you have to increase the dose uh, uh, higher and higher, the kind of easy money to just keep the thing going. Uh, 
uh, and uh, it seems out of the question right now in Europe to increase interest rates because uh, the, the tensions are not decreased in the political area and everyone is afraid, of course, that the euro may fail and uh, that the Brexit was only the first uh, big challenge. Uh, uh, and uh, with now with the UK going out of the European Union, we have a majority of the more southern, more spendthrift uh, uh, countries uh, in, in uh, Europe. Uh, and of course, it's not at all in the interest to have increasing interest rates uh, because that would end the spending bonanza that's going on. Uh, and have a Greece-like Greece-style correction uh, happening there as well. Uh, and of course, Italy is already threatening to leave the euro uh, project uh, to have their kind of even more depreciating currency they had before to make it even <clears throat> easier to uh, uh, continue with an unsustainable system they've become used to. Right. And uh, I think also another point you make is that uh, it's like a monetary hot potato and each Fed chair is passing on to the next So a central bank leader is passing it on to the next one and saying, OK, now it's your problem. You deal with it. Yeah, definitely. But that's that's short termism. And we see it in politics. I mean, now I see it in monetary politics as well. And uh, actually, the whole point of central banking is to combat the short termism of people on the markets. So you should have a more long-term oriented monetary policy, but this kind of hot potato monetary policy, of course, is the definition of short-termism. Uh, we see we can increase interest rates, so we just uh, keep on going and see where it goes and see how the next one will cope with it. Uh, uh, and we've had a change already to uh, Ms. La Mrs. Lagarde uh, uh, in uh, Europe, uh, or which was quite uh, well observed uh, shift. And <laughs> Ms. Lagarde is quite intelligent, proud person, but very pragmatic, technocratic uh, personality, a French politician. And uh, what every central banker is trying to do is to come up with more innovative ways to avoid going for negative, nominal negative interest rates and do whatever it takes to come up with ideas to produce liquidity without the markets realizing it, without people anticipating it, and somehow still keeping in control. So uh, Ms. Lagarde is really interested in digital currencies, and I think she'll go for the kind of uh, central bank digital currency way, which is like the hottest idea among central bankers right now, who think they somehow can copy the success of Bitcoin and make it their own and use the hype surrounding it and the coolness and innovativeness surrounding it to somehow hide behind uh, their very uninnovative, very uncreative kind of monetary policy. Of course. And uh, with this monetary policy, I think it's also, we have to talk about the social consequences. Now, listeners who have read uh, Guido Holzman's The Ethics of Money Production, there's a chapter there about this. And I think your book, Rahim, actually expands on some of these ideas and puts them almost into more context for today of what are some of these social consequences that we are seeing. Because usually when you have uh, you know, like a low interest rate, what should that normally signify versus when we've got an artificial low interest rate. And can you expand a little bit on what some of those social consequences are for us in society? Yeah, actually, a lot of credit goes to Guido Hilsmann, who's a very esteemed colleague uh, and uh, German speaking uh, as well uh, of mine. And uh, in his Ethics of Money Production, he pointed out the distortion, the societal distortion by inflationary policy. Uh, of course, uh, we've gone from there and uh, much deeper in our analysis in not only looking more detail uh, how these effects look like, uh, but also 
uh, we've seen a difference. It's not just an inflation that's going on. It's kind of really uh, interesting, zero interest policy, monetary policy going on, uh, which uh, is unlike uh, past inflations. Uh, so there are, uh, it differs a bit uh, in the detail. There are more kind of interesting paradoxical tensions happening within society than it would be with an outright uh, inflation uh, going on. And uh, we've looked into that uh, in more detail and we could uh, analyze a lot of the polarization happening uh, right now uh, in politics, but also in society. Um, it's really uh, correlated to the kind of monetary policy. Uh, in a zero, a zero interest rate on the market, um, uh, question if that could ever arise. Uh, if we have a tendency towards a zero interest rate, it means that people would not distinguish between future and past uh, and uh, it's only thinkable in a very theoretical way. Uh, it's people who have a very ascetic lifestyle and they really forsake uh, the present life uh, and uh, wouldn't care uh, about retaining anything uh, for themselves. Uh, so they'd be willing to give up all their savings, all the money for basically nothing because they say it's better someone else have it. Uh, better is used elsewhere than for myself. Uh, so there's no kind of inclination for consumption. And of course, we see it's a totally different uh, picture uh, at the moment. Uh, it's increasingly consumerist society, uh, but still the market gets the signals as if uh, there'll be so much money available for investments because no one wants to con consume. Uh, and uh, as if there was money for an infinitely long-term investment periods available. Uh, so you get a very strange distortion of the productive structure, uh, which shows a big mismatch with the actual preferences of the population uh, without people really realizing it. And that's a lot of tension happening there uh, and a lot of the capital consumption happening, for example, the increase in burnout rates uh, um, among employees, the increase of seemingly bullshit jobs, as David Graeber calls them, and he doesn't really analyze it, so he just uh, uh, coined the term uh, and, of course, gives his kind of anti-capitalist uh, reasoning for it. Uh, uh, but it doesn't make sense. If a market economy is about matching the preference of people, it wouldn't make sense that you have people going voluntarily uh, for jobs that don't make sense. You can only explain that through this kind of distortion of the production structure. And, uh, of course, uh, that debt has become a way of life for people, so they've become really dependent uh, on going on uh, with paying the rates, which are, of course, are anticipated for the future as if the present would go on as it is, which means they keep their job, they keep the purchasing power, and the house uh, retains its value, and so on and so on. And that uh, kind of leads to a uh, way of life which is really a dependent a debt uh, a servant in a way, and uh, makes people very reluctant to go out of the way, to be critical. Uh, and you have a lot of this yesayers uh, um, running along. Uh, and there you see even a change in mentality happening. Right, yeah. And I think it's a, you, you really put it well there when you were saying it's almost like the quote-unquote signal is that we're all aesthetics and we don't need that much. And we're, but then... In reality, what is driving is the complete opposite, where it's complete consumerism. And uh, in your book, you spell out some nice examples. It might be good to talk through some of those just to help make that a bit more real for people. And you, you point out here, there's this whole phenomenon now with travel and Instagram and airline miles, right? So it's airline miles are a huge thing. Everyone's got a credit card and they're all, you know, talking about travel hacking and so on. And 
what's actually paying for all of those airline miles? <laughs> yeah, that's uh, actually banks buying the airline miles and credit cards. And they see it as a kind of a trigger spending. Uh, so by traveling, you try to copy that kind of consumer, heavy consumer's lifestyle. And uh, they hope, of course, you get a very cheap flight uh, uh, but then you continue spending and trying to get the perfect Instagram photo from the infinity pool as everyone else uh, gets it. Uh, so it's kind of avalanche of spending happening there. And it's, of course, credit card companies uh, uh, making money not only on the fees, but also on the overspend, overdraft, uh, uh, really high interest rates. I mean, the last remaining high interest rates are there by people consuming too much and not really anticipating that increased consumption and going overdraft from their credit cards uh, and so on. And of course, there's kind of short-termist consumerism, uh, which I don't think consumption is bad per se. I don't think traveling is bad. It's just we try to understand why is it happening to such a a large amount, why is it becoming so ubiquitous, Uh, why is it so obvious, why is more and more of advertisements going for that kind of consumer spending and that of course you can only explain by explaining where the money comes from because uh, in the long run a fool and his money is parted uh, always so (laughs) you spend more than you take uh, you'll be just shut out of the market as a consumer you don't have any more cents any more votes to spend on the production structure but of course there seems to be an infinity of new votes being added <laughs> to this kind of voting process and that explains why more and more entrepreneurs uh, try to go for this scale up uh, consumerist markets and where there are a lot of paradoxical business models where you don't have the uh, actual consumers spending the money but he pays with the uh, uh, attention spans and so on and you try to go all this uh, uh, backward, hidden way, roundabout way of uh, uh, getting most money out of the consumer scheme that's happening. And uh, uh, traveling is one of the fields where it's happening. Right. And I think you make a good point as well that a lot of the actual revenue for airlines now comes from those frequent flyer programs because everyone's trying to chase those points. And then it's like the revenue is coming from like the credit card companies almost. Uh, and now another point I wanted to touch on, you mentioned this as well around the business model, right? Because In the normal capitalist world, the entrepreneur is trying to serve the consumer. But one point you make in your book is that actually now entrepreneurs are sort of serving lenders and egos. They sort of, many of them have this desire to leverage the reputation of being a serial entrepreneur and it's, they try to get bought out by some really even bigger company and they're sort of surviving off of that. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's one of the main problems that it's not really a market economy when you don't have the link between serving a consumer, a real consumer and serving him long-term if you want to have a long-term business, a sustainable business uh, by going for leveraging as much as possible to the fast, to the first. Uh, and uh, of course, by leveraging, you have all these kind of potential laws being even more extremely enforced. Uh, it's being number one, really pays out uh, if you scale on the global scale. Uh, so, And then, of course, entrepreneurship changes in a way. Uh, it's uh, what an entrepreneur is like, what is perceived like, what are the most popular entrepreneurs who are deemed to be successful. Of course, a lot of also the attention by the media is very short-termist. You don't look at the track record. You don't look uh, into if someone has really been in the business for long-term serving customers. It may be a success story that's a one year old and the next year it may be 
uh, known as a fraud uh, to everyone and build it just as big a story. Uh, so we have this kind of Theranos-like scams uh, <laughs> uh, increasing where you just you try to leverage your personality as a startup entrepreneur and you try to take out as much as possible of that. It means access to venture capital, access to uh, leg- legitimacy, attention, uh, and so on. Uh, and uh, I, I, don't, it's, I don't think it's bad per se to have an entrepreneur who's focused on the more short time span, attention span consumer. I think that provides value to a lot of people, of course, uh, uh, but it's bad if you have this kind of density and you know, the whole focus of being an entrepreneur shifts to that field because then I'm afraid of the long-term consequences and the perception of people. And maybe you have more and more young people saying, oh, I don't want to be an entrepreneur. It's like being a, scam, a scammer or something. I want to be... I want to do something serious. And maybe that's one of the reasons why a lot of millennials say they'd really like to work for states uh, uh, for, for government jobs. They're looking for government jobs, uh, not only because they seem to provide a long-term stability and safety, but also because they seem to be more moral, make, seem to make more sense, uh, uh, and so on. And I think that's a really worrying sign uh, we're seeing here. It's not those young people being statists. It's... Uh, uh, per se, it's they react towards a distorted market economy, distorted jobs that they find on the market, uh, yeah, and uh, yeah, react this way. Yeah, and as you say, it's like subsidizing of the present by the future, and uh, it's like these capital consumption entrepreneurs are just arbitrating from the future to the present. Yes, yes, uh, definitely. I mean, they they're just doing what they're supposed to do. There's all the signals, signals they are sent to them. And in a sense, uh, I wouldn't blame the entrepreneurs. They're still entrepreneurs creating lots of value. Uh, and of course, having this kind of value in entertainment is amazing. It's an expression form for artists. And the best artists of our time, of course, right now are in this kind of short-term entertainment, producing amazing series for TV or streaming uh, and so on. So there's a lot of value created for people. It's just I don't think uh, it should be in a larger proportion. I would like to see more of creativity going to fields that really bring forth humanity in the long term uh, and so on. Uh, and this kind of arbitrage is really distorted, caused by distorted signals on the pseudo market and uh, first of all by distorted interest rates. Uh, Mm, right. And actually, you talk about another idea that uh, we might be seeing an increase in political correctness as well, and that there's more conformism as a result of separating the short-term benefit uh, from long-term consequences and social costs. Can you elaborate a little bit? What are you getting at there? Yeah, more and more people are kind of living in bubbles uh, because the whole life happens in bubbles. Then educational institutions, which in a way are separated from the real world and are as well beneficiaries of uh, this kind of monetary policy. There's been a boom in educational institutions, uh, also private uh, education, but of course certified by the state. So there's a kind of fake market happening there. Uh, and then going on from uh, your educational institution uh, until your mid uh, in your mid twenties already uh, to a job in a big corporation or something like that, where you're insulated uh, from uh, really serving consumers as well, because they, those are not sustainable structures. They are bubble structures, so you remain in the bubble for a very long time. And remaining in the bubble, being insulated from real consequences for real people. Of course, fosters this kind of mindset, uh, uh, which uh, just focus on your kind of level 
and and and, uh, and the place you're working at, and and you realize this kind of an, uh, egoistical uh, institutional interest uh, where you're in, um, and of course that uh, helps along. Uh, and then you have the conformist pressure, of course, that I mentioned before by probably being in debt already. Uh, by starting out a life uh, in the United States, even starting uh, being in debt by spending time in the ed educational institutions. In Europe, it's more uh, government debt that assumes uh, that, so it'd be your future tax spending that has to cover it anyway. So it's not that different, the situation is a bit more obvious in the United States, but then less obvious at the same time because this kind of uh, credit financing is subsidized by a large degree and on unseen, uh, ununderstood degree uh, by most people. Uh, so it's similar systems <laughs> where in uh, different uh, fields you see these misalignments uh, and mismatches. Uh, so yeah. being separated from reality and being a conformist uh, leads to this kind uh, of thinking that uh, uh, pervades even universities right now where you have mostly it's the, the, the uh, they call it the middle part of the middle sector at the university, administrative staff really running things, and they are uh, small mind bureaucrats basically going along, indebted bureaucrats uh, who spend time in the same educational institutions, never been out in, in the real world, uh, and just cling onto the jobs and cling onto every kind of power they can get. Uh, and so I don't think it's about ideology if you have this political correctness at campus right now. It's about conformists trying to cling on to power, having something to control other people with, uh, and trying to assume a kind of administrative responsibility uh, to construct a kind of safe haven around people and just uh, uh, perpetuate a kind of bubble there in uh, and get more and more people and money uh, spent in those bubbles. Mm, yeah, yeah. And uh, I, I think we've got to talk about the devastating impact on savers. Now, you have a great example in your book where you talk about this baker analogy, right? And so this idea is, okay, imagine we had a price control of zero for bread. Well, it's not that bread would be free, it's that less people would become bakers, right? So it's that like, why would you be a baker if you're not going to get anything for it? Yeah. And now you say, well, in this analogy, what about savers? Because if you give people basically zero return or negative return for saving, what does that do to saving? It just annihilates them. It, the harvest is not enough of the, the amount that they've saved. They have to now consume their seed. Can you articulate uh, some of your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's a prediction by Keynes that actually <laughs> turned out to be correct, but what wasn't correct was what he thought would go along with it. It's the euthanasia of the saver, that's what he called it, because he thought that the saver and the end of the hoarder is really an unproductive part of the economy, especially old people holding on to the money and not investing it, and that's a very uh, wrong point, a uh, very wrong interpretation of the economy, because you, ha you have to hold liquidity to have this intertemporal coordination between future uh, and uh, the present uh, going on, uh, so you need always people providing liquidity uh, to the markets and holding on to liquidity on the markets without any negative impact for people. And in order to make investments, in particular long-term entrepreneurial investments, you need to have liquidity available uh, uh, because you can't do these investments in small pieces. Uh, you need to you can hoard in small uh, pieces. That's why hoarding is that important to the small saver, and that basically was the way to go on saving in the past and this kind of saving uh, has disappeared or there's a lot of pressure to disappear because it doesn't make sense anymore of course there are still old people trying to save their way but they lose all of their purchases so 
I guess in terms of uh, where we're at and where we're going, what are some of the potential ways out of this zero interest rate trap? Well, the likeliest way is really the modern monetary policy <laughs> way, uh, and that's just uh, uh, really uh, go without any kind of remaining independence uh, of the central banks. Is just make the treasury produce all the money they need, uh, and then just have the state fill all the gaps. So, uh, with uh, private employment uh, disappearing in that kind of uh, uh, economy and i think it'll be triggered by losing trust in money of course you have a decrease in investment decrease in division of labor uh, and you basically go into full-blown kind of socialism it's not direct socialism uh, it's a new kind of socialism uh, but i'm not that pessimistic because i think we have uh, uh, so that's the way where it goes uh, policy-wise but that's not, I think, necessarily the way it goes on the global level, because every step you take in this direction uh, increases the signaling power of the distortions on the market. So people react to it, go towards other assets. So immediately, if you pursue that kind of policy, you need to have strict capital controls. You have to control every kind of spending and assets. Uh, and that, of course, becomes obvious for people. And you have new assets coping with that, new entrepreneurs coping with that. I think one of the main reasons Bitcoin has appreciated that fast uh, as no asset uh, in the past is really the best performing asset in history so far uh, was due to Chinese capital controls. Because the Chinese, of course, have been all going on with the same kind of monetary policy, uh, but they have uh, that... Uh, uh, Communist Party in power, which uh, deems to be more able to control people. Uh, so they have really tight capital controls. And Bitcoin has been one way, which really, uh, in the proven way, has allowed people to kind of uh, escape these kind of capital controls and shift the savings out of uh, the Chinese system. Uh, and I think uh, we'll see an increased value of those kind of assets and those kind of solutions. And then, of course, uh, makes futile a kind of monetary policy. It's happening. It may even mean that people uh, go out of government money, uh, fiat money, and uh, start counting in new assets uh, uh, and so on, try to keep the savings out of the system, and even try to keep part of the investment out of the system and so on. So that increases the pressure. And I don't think uh, heterogeneous political uh, area like Europe can really keep up with that kind of pressure because you're always too slow if you have to coordinate between uh, diff different nations, different nation states. So, of course, I think if they pursue the kind of monetary policy further, it will. Uh, they think that they are easing up the pressure uh, and the conflict potential, but actually they're increasing it on the long term. So we'd rather have a, a destruction of the euro in the whole European process than continuing this kind of monetary policy. So I, I think it will become obvious uh, the failure of this kind of monetary policy. And I think the jurisdictions that can hold out, that realize the potential and really offering a money that you can save in uh, will be the winners uh, of this uh, kind of shift that's happening right now. And of course, within Europe, right next door to Germany, we have Switzerland, we have Liechtenstein, um, with their own currency and their central bank, of course, tries to keep up with the inflation rate uh, of the euro uh, because people are used to somehow have uh, 
stable money and they just look at the fiat money uh, money they compared with uh, but uh, uh, it's already crazy what the Swiss national bank has to do in order to keep up with the depreciation of the other currencies so they're one of the biggest investors in Facebook right now for example because they just keep up buying dollar assets and they keep up buying euro assets and of course they buy up the best performing assets because they are not stupid in a way, but it's, it becomes more and more absurd that you have central bank then uh, buying all those kind of assets to just keep up with the depreciation uh, of the other currencies. Uh, so there might be a stopping point. Uh, they might go for two different Swiss francs, one Swiss francs that may stop depreciating uh, and so on. And we see it's a really interesting time to be alive. I think we see a lot of entrepreneurial solutions. I think we have see a lot of jurisdictions stepping out of line with other jurisdictions. Uh, so I'm really optimistic and optimistic in the long run uh, that this kind of distortion uh, may have a natural end. Right. And uh, I guess just to summarize the way I'm thinking of what you're saying, it's like as these central banks continually accumulate more and more of well-known large public companies, it's almost like a nationalization of some of these big companies. And uh, as someone like, say, Hans Hermann Hoppe would point out that, you know, it, it's just increasing the politicization of society because now you can't just run a business. You have to run the business and that business is also very highly influenced by the government. And so it's kind of like a backdoor nationalization or backdoor creeping statism over time. And so we really are faced with that choice of do you want to save in the government money and be a part of that whole government system? Or are you going to start saving some assets outside of that system, whether that's gold or Bitcoin or some of these other uh, ways of kind of doing that? Yeah. So look, I think we're coming to the end of time. But Rahim, make sure you tell my listeners where can they find you. And I think for my listeners, I do want to recommend, definitely recommend reading the book. I think there's a lot of great insight in terms of social consequences of fiat money as we've discussed today. So Rahim, make sure you let them know where they can find the book and find you. Thanks a lot. It's the zero interest trap. Uh, it's called. You can find it on Amazon and I hope in bookstores uh, around. Uh, uh, and uh, it's uh, only a few of my books have been translated to English. Another one was the Austrian School for Investors. You may want to check that out as well. Uh, uh, apart from that, I'm mainly speaking and writing and lecturing in German. Uh, but you can find some YouTube videos in English as well. Uh, a few of the lectures I did in English. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much for joining me. I've really enjoyed chatting with you. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed that. I'm currently in Austin, Texas. So look out for an interview next week with Will Cole from Unchained Capital. Also, next week, we've got Advancing Bitcoin, the developer conference that's on in London, 6th and 7th of February. So if you haven't already got your ticket, go to advancingbitcoin.com and use the code LAVERA. There are still some last-minute tickets available. And for those of you just around, make sure you ping me on Twitter or give me an email and we might be able to do a meetup for listeners of the podcast who are interested. As always, check out the website, get the transcript and the show notes at stefanlavera.com. Thanks for listening and I will see you in the Citadels. Oh,